we've come up with some names for a possible liberal dating app because <laughs> the conservative one calls itself the right stuff. You could call it liberal love. That's a, that's a good start. That's good. Um, okay, comrade. <laughs> um, yeah, like that's okay, Cupid. Yeah. Uh-huh. And finally, date stage capitalism. <laughs> um, Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, where are we going to start? We've got an interesting show today. An investigation into the Trump organization is heating up and the company's accountants are jumping ship. We'll discuss the implications for the former president. TikTok, the most popular app of 2021, has changed our culture. But is the app driving a mental health crisis or providing an economic boost for small creators? We'll debate the pros and cons of the viral video platform. Then an update on a story Ravi covered closely. San Francisco recalls school board members by landslide margins. And do you have the right stuff to join the new conservative dating app backed by Facebook's Peter Thiel? We'll give you the details. But first things first, inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. The U.S. Consumer Price Index shot up by 7.5% last month, outrunning wage growth and squeezing budgets all over the country. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. But to hear from some progressive senators like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, there's only one culprit here corporate greed. Let's unpack what's really going on with the inflation crisis. Uh, Robbie, there is this narrative that we're seeing on the left that is the corporations rising prices, not actual inflation. Like, what you know, what's going on here? Yeah, I think like one critical moment in this this narrative about inflation was Joe Biden before the Super Bowl did this interview with Lester Holt. And it was incomprehensible. Uh, he, you know, like Lester, most Biden interviews. Yeah, Lester Holt asks about inflation, uh, and and I think Biden says something like, "What are you trying to be a wise guy or something like that?" I think a lot of Americans are wondering what your definition of temporary is. Well, you're being a wise guy with me a little bit, uh, and I understand that's your job. And then he goes into an explanation where he's saying, "Well, this is what like the Nobel laureates and CEOs are telling me, and all that." According to Nobel laureates, 14 of them that contacted me and a number of corporate leaders, it's ought to be able to start to taper off as we go through this year. And so I think, in a way, you've got this vacuum on the left where the president isn't really inserting himself with any clarity, and because of that, I think the Warrens of the world, the Bernies of the world are stepping in and saying, all right, um, you know, there are hammers and, and, you know, everything is a nail in the sense that everything is corporate greed for them. And so they're telling their story and their story is resonating because you don't have a president who's telling a competing story. And my sense is that what they're saying, Bernie and Warren, it's possible that corporate greed is a part of inflation and we'll go through the data. It certainly does not seem true to me that it is the main driver of inflation right now. And, and we'll go through some of those numbers, I'm sure. But that's that's where I come out on this. Definitely. And I think if you look at the amount of money that we've been printing over the past couple of years in response to COVID, which, of course, did start with Trump, but has continued with Biden, we've increased the supply of dollars by 40 percent. And so... T- I mean, just on a logical basis, it's at the same time we have the supply chain issues. So we have less goods and more dollars chasing fewer goods. Like it's inevitable that prices are going to rise and continue to rise. But it's interesting, like there's been kind of a flip in the narrative originally, like in the summer, there was a New York Times article saying like, what was it, 179 reasons you shouldn't worry about uh, inflation. And there were tweets going ar- going around, like Sarah Jong, who was uh, formerly at the New York Times at Vice and Verge, um, she said, all the stuff you're seeing about inflation in the news is driven by rich people flipping their shit, which is just 
pretty much the opposite of what's going on right now. I mean, the more wealthy people tend to have more money in the stock market. Their assets kind of fluctuate with the value of the dollar versus people who are actually spending their paychecks at the grocery store, are the ones that are feeling this crunch. And it's now the number one issue that people are concerned about at like 27% of people saying it's the number one problem. Yes, there was a, a poll that, that Ricky's referring to in which uh, people were asked, what's the what's the main problem facing this nation right now? And most of them did say inflation. 27% of them said it, and it was the number one issue there. But the value of the dollar has gone down. And there was mass spending during the pandemic. And also during the pandemic, people bought more stuff. Like they were sitting at home, they were uh, panic buying, they were hoarding stuff, they were buying stuff off of Amazon because they were bored. So you have lower supply because of the supply chain you know, issues of the pandemic and you have higher demand because people are spending more money and they have more money to spend, that just sounds like a disaster recipe for inflation. Yeah, the, the timing was bad because in the beginning of the pandemic, it was actually the opposite, no spending. So people yeah. had money, they didn't have anything to spend it on because they couldn't really purchase, they, they, they couldn't purchase services because you couldn't go to a restaurant, you couldn't go to that yoga studio, et cetera. They were, they were you know, for one of the rare times in American history, we were saving more than we were spending. And then the timing, it all hit the market at the same time. And so this is where I think like a lot of people are selling a simple story on this, but yeah. inflation is driven by a lot of things, you know, rising demand, which is what you just talked about. You know, we have all this money hitting the market at the same time. Uh, spending rose 12% year over year in the week that ended February 5th. You have falling supply, which is obvious, the supply chain issues, the labor shortages, et cetera. You have increased production costs, so material labor costs. And then you have profits, right? And profits are a part of that story, but they're not the only part of the story. And you can compare this pretty easily, like to say, like, how much do profits really play into this? Like Robert Reich, the former labor secretary for Clinton, had this tweet about Starbucks and calling out Starbucks yeah. because they had record profits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a couple questions about his tweet. Number one is like, it seems to me like almost every year we have record profits, 2020 being an exception, right? So like, it's not unique to me that you have record profits. Is it frustrating that you have record profits at a time when prices are going up? Yes. But do I think that those record profits are a mere reflection of price gouging that's unique to this situation? No. Like It's not like corporations just discovered greed yesterday. Yeah. I would also have a question, which is like people who are listening at home, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but if you have a local coffee shop down the street from you and you have a Starbucks, I would go and try to figure out, like, has, have the prices at your local coffee shop risen less high than uh, or in less proportion to the Starbucks? First of all, that's a supply, that's a competition thing. Most places that have a Starbucks probably have other coffee shops. So if it's true that Starbucks is raising their prices out of whack with the local coffee shop, go to the local coffee shop. But also if the local coffee shop is raising their prices in, at the same proportion that Starbucks is, maybe something other than price gouging is going on unless that local coffee shop is also being excessively greedy. So I don't know. Like, I just don't have an answer yet to it. I, I want to be this populist who's like, yeah, it's the corporations and that's probably good politics. So I understand yeah. the mm -hmm. politics of it, yeah. but I'm just not sure it's what's driving this. Well, raising prices just across the board isn't the smartest thing for most corporations to do because they have competition and that's kind of, you know, your competition, if your competition has lower prices, they're going to get the, the dollar. They're going to get the consumer's dollar. Well, can I say one thing on that before we go to the next thing on the competition front? One thing the Biden administration did that I do agree with is when asked about this question, at least in when they were earlier asked about this, I don't know what they're saying this week on this, but they did 
focus on the meat industry. And that is an industry yes. that to me seems like it does have problems with competition. There are four companies that control 85% of meat processing in this country. And that's wow. double the amount of market consolidation than 20 years ago. And so that's serious. Mm -hmm. And to me, and, and that's an industry that is as unaccountable and uh, I think a lowercase c at least corrupt than anything. Like trying to get into a meat processing plant in the United States is like harder than getting into Fort Knox. Like these are very secretive companies. And not only do they treat the the animals uh, poorly, they treat their workers poorly, and they may be, you know, they may be engaging in some kind of nefarious coordination on their prices. I'm not, I don't have evidence of that, but there's when there are only claim four, there, when there are only four, it's not that hard, and you don't have to pick up the phone and call the guy at Tyson Foods to say, all right, I'm going to do this, you're going to do that. They can, there are fewer people they need to track and compete with. I mean, you saw what the beef industry did to Oprah. I think we need to be- uh, What did they do to her? Uh, well, remember when the whole Matt Kyle disease thing happened and she had a whole expose about it on her show, the beef industry like threatened her and oh, yeah? tried to come after mm -hmm. her. So so if the beef industry is listening to this, you know, I do not <laughs> endorse what Robin is saying about you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Big beef. Uh, I actually want to go back to one of these tweets about these rising prices. This, there's a tweet from Kassam Rashid Esquire that talks about all these different, Chipotle, 26% profit increase, raising prices. Starbucks, 31% profit increase, raising prices. McDonald's, 59% profit increase, raising prices. It's, and, so, and at the end of this tweet, it basically says, there's not a labor shortage. This isn't inflation. It's 100% corporate greed. What do you say to the liberal person, the progressive person, who is seeing these CEOs getting paid more money, these profit margins are sky high, and yet everything is getting more expensive? To them, it does seem like that's a big part of why things are so so expensive. So how do you how do you explain to them that inflation is also a part of the equation without with this evidence sitting there? Well, what I'm curious about is this says the profit increase, but not the percentage of the raising prices. And so when you're holding the figure in your head of, oh, there's been a 7% rate of inflation, if these prices are being raised beyond 7%, then that's definitely some price gouging going on. But, you know, these these are industries where when everyone's kind of locked down and we haven't been traveling as much and we have more expendable income, like people might be more likely to go pick up their lunch at Chipotle or at, grab a coffee at Starbucks rather than make something in their Keurig. Like it's, I think that sure. there's a potential that there's just more at play based on what, how people's consumption is changing. So I'd be curious to see, I, I don't know off the top of my head what the rate is that they've actually raised the prices themselves, because if that's out of whack with inflation, then that's definitely like some price gouging. But I, I would be very cautious to say that the fact that our money supply went up by 40% isn't part of what's going on here. Yeah, and, and you could see that if you compare our experience with Europe, for example, mm -hmm. where they have very similar global supply issues mm -hmm. that we have, and an even worse experience with the oil market because of their their dependence on uh, imports. Like we have, we have way less dependent on imports because we have more domestic supply. Uh, their inflation is less than ours. What's the biggest difference? Well, they printed less money than we did. To Ricky's point, um, I have another question about this, and I I don't like big oil, so this is weird. I'm like almost defending big oil, but you know, John Stossel. You know, he pointed out like when, you know, they talk about in this tweet, 60% uh, profit increase for big oil. And he was like, well, when oil, you know, was, it was dropping like the price per barrel of oil over the past few years, especially at the heart of the pandemic, where people saying, whoa, like these are, these are really idealistic, generous oil companies. Now they're yeah. cutting their prices for the good. Like, like greed of was invented in yeah. 2021, yeah, of course, like, naturally. There is a supply demand thing. Now, I do think, I want to be clear. I do think it's important to monitor these companies and say, 
are the CEOs making too much money, especially like a lot of cases where CEOs are making money, but the, the bottom line of the company isn't improving. So like maybe they're, the company's becoming less profitable and the CEO is making more money, et cetera. But what's interesting is here is like, that's not necessarily the argument that I'm seeing, but also like there there is a shareholder effect in a lot of these companies. A lot of these aren't like Facebook style companies where, where there's these preferred shares and you can't hold Mark Zuckerberg accountable. A lot of these are companies where you have people like Warren Buffett and huge institutions, pension funds who own huge parts of these shares. And there is a certain disciplining effect where if you're, if you're spending too much money on compensation at the top end year over year over year and not improving your business, then there is a certain discipline of the market. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it, it, it goes down to the customer. And, and that's why I think there needs to be certain reforms. And I think Warren, I don't love all the reforms that she proposes, but I do think that if there are sensible ways that aren't too bureaucratic to, to incentivize companies to pay people for performance, I'm for that. But I also think the market can instill a lot of that discipline too. Mm, and Absolutely. it's interesting, Nick Gillespie, for reason, um, did a video recently about how Elizabeth Warren and this kind of new rising group in the left that's saying that this is corporate greed sounds a whole lot like Gerald Ford, of all people, who did <laughs> whip inflation now was his uh, policy back in the day where he put a lot of pressure on corporations to keep the costs down or keep prices down and like in, incentivized consumers to never pay above what like the prior market pr price has been. And like even the Washington Post has like a super long article on how that's completely disastrous. And when you try to manipulate the markets in that way, it backfires. So it's an interesting historical parallel between the two of them. Yeah, I, I'm like, I'm hesitant to do too many price controls. There's like a horrible history of them outside of things that are like life-saving medicines yeah. and mm -hmm. things like that. Like they're, there I think the government has an obligation if they're gonna, and then if they're gonna do price controls, they need to main, they have to ensure that there's adequate supply. Yeah. So a good example yeah. is like insulin is too expensive. And I think that we should be lowering the cost of insulin, but we also should make sure that the government takes on the responsibility of monitoring it to make sure that the supply is there. And I think that's totally something the government could do, but that this gets to my theory of government. Don't do that to too many different things because I don't think the government has the ability to maintain adequate supply of too many things in the market. Mm. Yeah. Investigations into possible financial crimes by the Trump organization took a turn this week. The company's longtime accounting firm, Mazars USA, cut ties with the Trump family business and retracted a decade's worth of balance sheets, calling them unreliable. Since the investigations here in New York are probing whether Trump illegally inflated his assets to defraud lenders, you can see where his accountants recanting filings might be a bit of an issue for him. But it's not clear yet what this means for Trump, if anything. So what do we think? I mean, uh, he is the Teflon Don. They haven't been able to really get him or anything yet. But is this a bigger issue? Is this one of those things that Trump may not be able to uh, come away clean from? Well, you got to remember the original Teflon Don, John Gotti, did eventually wind up going to prison, um, which is where he expired. Yeah. Uh, what's staggering about all of this is there are 19 legal cases right now against Trump. There's six financial cases, seven January 6th cases, two election interference cases, Jeez. one sexual misconduct case, and three other cases. So there's a lot uh, of legal activity around the former president. And my position on this generally is that uh, this is why it's ever more important for these investigations to be independent. Because if he did 19 separate illegal acts or some version of that, uh, then he should be held accountable. Absolutely. But these need to be impartial, non-political investigations, and some of them are better than others. And, and as we've pointed out in previous episodes, Tish James, who handles the civil case in New York on this, who jumped on this announcement and said, see, I was right, I think 
I continue to call on her and Alvin Bragg, who handles the criminal investigation, who we interviewed recently. I continue to call on them to recuse themselves from this and hand it to civil servants because uh, if they're confident in their case, they don't need to be presiding over it. It's not like I think I love Alvin Bragg. Uh, I, I helped support his campaign. I'm sure Tish James is a great lawyer. They're not the best lawyers in the world. Like then they're managing a, a complicated office. They don't need to be handling the day-to-day to this. And the fact that they made prejudicial statements about these before the elections means that they've set a really bad precedent. Um, and listeners can go to previous episodes when we talk about this. And I pushed Bragg on this when he came in here a couple months ago, um, but he said he's going to continue to handle that case. So I, I'm concerned about that. But also, if I were Trump, I'd be concerned because this is highly unusual for a, an accounting firm to to back away from their own work like this. Mm, definitely. And even like in the filings, they made statements kind of distancing themselves and saying these are his numbers that he provided. But it's interesting just to point out that there aren't really a lot of legal parallels for a case like this, because generally like this would require that an audit had taken place. And we still don't know if Trump would is going to pay back those loans based on the um, allegedly inflated assets. So yeah. I, this is something that like had he not been him maybe would have just never come up in the first place which is interesting but yeah to, to underscore that like on these sometimes these fraud cases you want to look for a victim and so if he pays the loans back it's almost like a victimless crime in a way like obviously if people are flouting these standards eventually people will stop paying things yeah. back because then i can like i can go out and get a billion dollar loan tomorrow on like imaginary numbers right yeah and it's definitely not to excuse it but it's just something that probably wouldn't have been flagged had had these investigations not been just probing him in general. Um, but it's also interesting in terms of like the document destruction allegations that he's yes. also yes. Um, coming up with now. Like there are really quite an array of uh, <laughs> of alleged ways that he's supposedly gotten rid of things, which would be um, in violation of the Presidential Records Act, including flushing them down the toilet allegedly. Um, apparently some of his aides had taped together things that he'd ripped apart. Oh, um, wow. Uh, someone, one of his former aides said that he was putting notes in his mouth at some point in time so i don't know if like it's what's true necessarily is- but actually one interesting kind of contingency to this entire case is that a lot of these records that have been supposedly destroyed like it will be very difficult for a jury to actually say for sure that these were presidential records because it's kind of like a murder without a body in yeah, a sense yeah, so yeah. in terms of trial this will be be interesting to see i mean there's not really any way to prove it but right, it yeah. does seem pretty damning if these allegations that he was flushing them in the White House are true. Sounding real Nixony to me. <laughs> real Richard Nixony. I mean, they retrieved uh, the National Archives retrieved fifteen boxes of docs from from Mar-a-Lago, from his residency in Florida, that he was not supposed to bring down there. So I I don't understand. I mean, when you when you when you're destroying documents, or even if you're accused of destroying documents, it, it's kind of like one of those things. I mean, he said Trump said himself when when Hillary Clinton was getting investigated, when there, and there were people taking the Fifth Amendment, it was like, hey, if you take the Fifth, you must be you must be guilty. So now it's kind of like those words coming back to haunt him. I mean, he's, if you're destroying evidence, that must be there's evidence of a crime. Yeah, you know, this does harken back to the the email coverage, and I was looking back over that coverage just to get a sense, just to remind myself of how skewed that coverage was, and. Um, you know, the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard went back over the 2016 election coverage to say, like, how skewed was the coverage towards Clinton and her emails? And this is what they had to say. They found roughly four times as many Clinton-related sentences, this is an overall coverage, that describe scandals as opposed to policies, uh, whereas Trump-related sentences were one and a half times as likely to be about policy 
and scandals. And then they went on to say, the various Clinton-related email scandals, her use of a private email server while Secretary of State, as well as the DNC and John Podesta hacks, accounted for more sentences than all of Trump's scandals. So wow. uh, that obviously was a problematic level of skewed coverage. Because uh, like, let's pretend that you think that both Clinton and Trump have the same, they came into that election with the same amount of scandal. I have my strong opinions about it, but like, let's just pretend that they're the same. Okay. Um, why is it that Clinton's getting four times as much coverage on her scandals than her policy, and then Cl Trump's getting covered more on policy than scandal? That's that's wild to I me. I think there's a very um, obvious reason that we can point to of why that happened, but I don't want to make assumptions, but I feel like that may be just the sexism that the media showed Hillary Clinton. I think it's that. I also think that the big bias in the media is towards eyeballs and sensationalism, and for one reason or another, people love stories about Clinton scandals more than they like them about Trump scandals. I think Which part of it's weird. the 19 cases against him. The guy commits so many- Allegedly. Either allegedly illegal acts, like norm-breaking acts, uh, just brazen, like new ways of talking about and engaging in behavior, like like the the flushing stuff down the toilet is an example of that. He even basically in his statement in response to the auditing, uh, like repeated numbers that <laughs> seem not to be credible about his own net worth. So he's like, <laughs> he's he, it's so hard to like. I think the public is like, yeah, I baked that into my perception of Trump. Whereas I think for Clinton, there was a an article by uh, Philip Bump in the Washington Post where he attempted to explain this phenomenon and say, all right, it's different. And he almost gave away the sort of media, like inside sort of assumption where he was basically saying like, this is the bottom of the pyramid for Trump, this story, whereas for Clinton, it was the top. And I, yeah. I think by that metaphor, he meant there's just so much stuff Trump is doing and people are just kind of tired of hearing about but it. But also- it's, To be I'm fair, sorry. at the same time though, like the media coverage of Trump leading up to 2016 was overwhelmingly negative and that's- irrefutable I, except for certain factions yeah of, i mean there's there is i can't remember the percentages off the top of my head but when you look at like the headline percentages of whether they were positive or negative they were overwhelmingly negative and i'm not defending him necessarily but there were definitely i think that i there was a weird faction of people who were kind of into the whole thing mm -hmm. but you know there's a double standard of this guy's not purporting to be really a politician or buttoned up or anything yeah. and Clinton was and for better yeah. or for worse I think that's kind of how this all shook out is he's kind of just like I don't know everything's gonna roll off me and it's gonna be fine but I, I would say that he the press wasn't necessarily too generous to him yeah and let's look into that because I think you know we're, we're piloting our show notes for this episode and so people can go uh, to our show notes after this episode and you'll get the research that we rely upon and so uh, one thing we'll do is we'll ask our researcher Elias to like find any of those analysis like because what, what I was uh, citing was scandal, right? And it yeah. seems like mm -hmm. the coverage of scandal is skewed against Clinton. And so what Ricky oh, yeah, is saying definitely. is positive versus negative. So maybe if even if it wasn't yeah. about a scandal, it was like Trump the man versus Clinton the person. Let's throw some research in there about, yeah. um, and then we'll come back to it in the next episode too, about like negative and positive coverage. Because I don't actually know the answer to that question. I, no. I, mean, I do I have my assumptions. And also yeah. just to clarify my position, I don't, I'm not saying that negative coverage wasn't warranted, but yeah, yeah there's definitely... Um, it's definitely worth pointing out. I think the scandals, the double standard and scandals is certainly true. And Trump pointed that out himself when he said that he could shoot someone in the middle yeah. of Fifth Avenue and it would be fine. Hope you're listening, so. Dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, no, yeah. I totally agree, Ricky. The, the, the 
it was negative reporting about Trump, but it was about his personality and the things yeah, he was saying. Definitely. It wasn't right. really about definitely. actual legal scandals that he was involved in versus Hillary Clinton. But I also, too, think it deals with the fact that these scandals with Hillary Clinton all occurred while she was a politician. Yeah. And whereas Trump stuff occurred while he was a businessman. So it's like we give this pass yeah. to businessmen because like, but oh, now you're he's in a business. politician again, though. And that's where yeah, I was. Absolutely. That's true totally. Now. And now it's, it's definitely different to, like, I hope that this level of accuracy, if this turns out to be true, like that he's violated the Presidential Records Act. I hope that we're going to hold him to the same account that we held Hillary Clinton to as a politician in that uh, in that kind of vantage point. So yeah. I think that's really important. But before he was just some dude who was like, I'm going to do this. Right. Run just for president. Dude. Why not? Just some dude. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about TikTok. Uh, TikTok is the most downloaded or was the most downloaded app of last year. And it has changed the way people use social media. As of June 2021, people are spending more time watching videos on TikTok than YouTube. That explains why I'm so popular on there. Uh, like any new technology, there is a debate about whether TikTok is having a good or bad influence on our society. Now, Ricky, I know you've done some reporting on the negative impact that TikTok is having, particularly on young women's mental health. Can you talk to us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, and definitely just to start with like kind of a caveat here. I don't love the whole like mo moral panic thing with like, oh, social media and this new technology is so terrible, but there's certainly the a demographic. Press. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's definitely world. a demographic that um, it seems like TikTok and kind of social media in general has historically been coming for, and that's young girls. And so we've known that for a while. Um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff pointed that out in The Coddling of the American Mind pretty early but there's a new wrinkle in this whole story when it comes to tiktok specifically where there's this new trend of mental health influencers who are showing their their disorders or like their um like tourette's tics or whether they have like dissociative identity disorder and they're flipping between personalities and they're getting an insane amount of views um bpd the hashtag which is a borderline personality disorder has 3.7 billion views bipolar 2 billion dissociative identity disorder 1.5 5 billion. And so this is actually manifesting according to some Wall Street Journal exposés in young girls where all of a sudden a ton of them are self-diagnosing with dis with disorders that aren't even seen in that demographic necessarily or they're developing Tourette's tics or Tourette's like tics in crazy numbers and actually there's this one really vivid example where this researcher realized that a bunch of young girls all developed the tick saying the word beans in a british accent even though none of them were british this was in america and some of them didn't even speak english and they think that it's because there's a tourette's influencer whose tick who's from britain whose tick is saying the word beans and so there's something happening with the young female mind, we have known for a long time that they're more um, susceptible to social contagion, like eating disorders tended to pop up in friend groups and stuff. And so I think this is super disturbing. And I, in my opinion, what I think is happening is every, every woman knows that when you're a teenage girl, like weird things happen in your mind with hormones. And this is sort of a weird way that like we're pathologizing adolescence and these girls are seeing something, they're looking for something to ascribe adolescence to. And they're, for better, or, well, definitely for worse, they're they're landing on these explanations, which is really unfortunate. What do you think the answer is for parents, right? Because like they're mm. they're the actors who probably have the most control yeah. over this situation. Do you think the answer is to just not have your kids on social media, like when I they're think, young? Would you would you like ban them from using it? I think definitely. I mean, I th 
all of these platforms, or I think almost all of them have a policy where you can't even sign up unless you're 13. And like, I was, I think like 10 or 11 when I was on, on social media. And like, we didn't really know back then, but certainly if I were a parent right now, like I wouldn't be looking towards the social media companies to regulate this because that's just not their incentive and they can't do it with the massive, uh, like material that's on them. And I also would not be looking to the government officials that are like asking about banning Finsta and they don't even know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say, I would say 13 seems pretty uh, logical to me. And it's not the same as texting your friends. Like you're opening up the door to the entire world and God knows what. And then the algorithm keeps kind of feeding you the same stuff. If you get hooked in one of these kind of loops. Wow. Yeah. The most disturbing thing about that is the fact that so many of these young women are self-diagnosing themselves with these conditions. There's no, they don't, they're not seeking like professional like therapists or counselors. They're just self-diagnosing them. And then it's like, if you tell them, well, you probably don't have that, then it's like, oh no, you, how can you tell me that? And it's just, it becomes this weird kind of mental wall they put up. And like you said, they're, they're, it's feeding their desire to be noticed like they're getting attention from this online attention that they're probably not getting in real life so there are definitely some disturbing trends there unfortunately like i remember and still kind of on instagram like the ideal when i was growing up was like oh you show like the highlight reel of your life you show like your best pictures and all the places you go and then now all of a sudden for some reason on tiktok specifically there's this new incentive of like showing your worst side like showing your meltdowns and that's what's getting views and hits like these are views in the billions and so it's really unfortunate yeah unfortunately tiktok way before it got really popular with older people it was a place where a lot of people had like disabilities and things like that got really popular and sometimes not for the right reasons because Mm -hmm. people were just taking their videos and and seeing them in like this weird light and so maybe that has a lot to do with the roots of where some of this stuff came from and i think it's important to say like i don't think we should be banning conversations about mental health like i think these people who want to share their stories should be allowed to i think what the, where the problem lies is allowing kids that are too young and impressionable to be viewing it at an inappropriate age. So I definitely am not in the camp of people saying like these, like we shouldn't be talking about this at all whatsoever. Like I don't want to relegate the people with mental health concerns into some like forbidden pile. And Corey, have you thought about what you're going to do with your son? Like, like are you going to train him up? Like you're going to be like the Del Curry to the Steph Curry of TikTok <laughs> or is he going to have to wait? <laughs> Uh, no, I am not. I don't want my son to be the Steph Curry of, of social media at all. No, I definitely maybe the would, Steph Curry of basketball. Maybe. Yeah. That tr- yeah. Fun. That'd be yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. Rather that. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't want. Uh, no, I definitely don't want my children to be exposed to social media at too young of an age. Uh, I do think it's unavoidable sometimes, especially when they're in school and stuff and you have other kids showing them things. But yeah, no, I, I would definitely hold off on that as as long as possible. But I do want to t- say that I want to point out that that social media isn't all bad and TikTok in particularly, it's not all bad. I mean, the things you're talking about, Ricky, are very problematic and, and, I, and I definitely hope more people look into that so maybe some of these younger women can get help. But, you know, TikTok is, there's some good things about TikTok. For instance, 100%. I mean, yeah, there's 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 this, there's these guys on there that make these like history videos that are really, <laughs> really interesting. Love those um, guys. Yeah, yeah. I like those guys too. Like there's this one guy, this is Corey. He's really <laughs> good at like history. Like you guys should go check him out on TikTok. Well, He's actually, while you're talking about that, it's worth mentioning we just launched our TikTok, not too long ago. Yes, we did. And Lost Debate TikTok. Uh, it's at Lost Debate. Is that right? Or Lost yeah, Debate? Is that Lost how debate. we say that on the on the, uh, yeah, on the at Lost Debate, right? Yeah. And so, uh, and you know, doing really well uh, and we're getting a lot of engagement and so people should go check it out. Follow yeah, us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Definitely go follow us on Lost Debate TikTok. Uh, and I just want to show and talk about a couple of examples of people whose lives were changed for the better 
all because of TikTok. Uh, there's this one incredible example uh, that one of my producers, Lucy, recently showed me. Vanessa Amaro, uh, she was a cleaning lady, just cleaning houses for a living, and she started making TikTok videos of her cleaning houses and showing different cleaning tricks. Uh, here's an example of one of the videos that she uh, got famous for. I'm a housekeeper, and I will give you the best cleaning hack of your life. Get this brush or something very similar from Target. You're going to get Dawn dish soap and vinegar. Yes, I say vinegar weird. Don't make fun of me, okay? Once you're done, you're going to take it and put it inside your shower. You know where this is going, right? Now, once a week, when you're putting that hair mask on, take your little brush and wash your shower while showering. If you're going to follow any of my tips, please let it be this one. Like and follow for more. That was just a short 30-second video of Vanessa showing us how you can clean your shower while you're showering, you know, kill uh, two birds with one stone. I hate that expression, but that's basically what she was showing. And that video got over 30 million views on TikTok, more than 2 million likes. And then it led to this next video I'm gonna show you, her success story. I'm gonna try to get through this video without crying. Hi, my name is Vanessa and I'm a housekeeper. My husband and I have been cleaning houses for the past six years together and I started this business about eight years ago. A year and a half ago, I started my TikTok and social media journey. My videos on how to clean things up went viral and now I have almost 10 million followers across all my platforms. And this, this is the moment we found out I was Clorox's official spokesperson. Thank you, Clorox, for believing in me, and thank you all. So she now has a job as an official spokesperson for Clorox, all from making TikTok videos about cleaning. And I think this is really great because it really empowers the working class. Like, now people can show how they do their jobs. This is actually a big thing. I see a lot of videos like this on TikTok where people are just showing, this is just how I do my job every day. And it actually influences people to learn how to do new things, you know, do-it-yourself projects, things like that. And then... Things like that happen where people get um, sponsorships from major companies. It's she gets to participate videos. in the price gouging that all of us uh, suffer. <laughs> well, under I mean, that's right a very now. negative way of yeah, looking yeah. at it. No, I'm kidding. Sure. I'm kidding. No, obviously, this is awesome, and I think like I'm I'm, I'm glad you you're. you're bringing these to the table because I think so many conversations about social media are only about the negative aspects definitely. of it. And that's just cool. Like, I don't know what yeah. else to say. That's awesome. No, definitely. I think that there's like definitely a, a conservatism that that takes the social media issue and is just like wants to burn the whole thing down and sees it as a complete issue. And like that pearl clutching is never accurate because of course there's it's also not be, an option like there's not no, it's not yeah, even definitely. possible that you could do that so, definitely yeah. and i think it's i think the conversations need to really hone in on the specific issues and the specific demographics that are at play and to appreciate that there are there is a lot of good that can come from these platforms for sure and you included as one of yes. the people i'm literally <laughs> only sitting right here because of tiktok because my videos got popular on there and um i was forced to come to New York City and be on The Lost Debate. But no, I love it. I love my job and I really I really enjoy doing this. Uh, but yeah, so I think the takeaway here is showing your mental health problems on TikTok, bad. Cleaning lady on TikTok. Good. Well, okay, not we don't, we're not totally against people showing their mental well, health. Well, yeah, if they want to like show a, it in a way where they're trying to show their problems. Or like letting your tween girl on TikTok, no, I'm not into that. Like that, that'll be our bad. That'll yeah, be yeah, our bad. Yeah, yeah. Tweens yeah. on TikTok. 
bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think a lot of my followers are not gonna like that statement, but okay. Uh let's move on to a story. San Francisco voters recalled three members of the city school board. Parents accused the school board of focusing on performative wokeness rather than reopening schools. Ravi, I know you did a lot of reporting on this. You had a episode, your regressives podcast, talked all about this. Uh catch us up on what happened here. Yeah. And so we have this sort of narrative series that we put in the same podcast feed right now as this show. In our first episode, it was December 20th, uh, I interviewed both factions of this uh, this election recall in San Francisco over the school board. Uh, parents who were uh, up in arms about certain things that were happening in the schools, which I'll get to, um, uh, Autumn Lewin and Shivaraj, who just took it upon themselves to organize a recall campaign against their school board. And they could only recall three members uh, because of the timing of the elections of the other members. And then I interviewed the chair of the school board who hadn't really been doing a lot of on the record interviews like that, but was gracious enough to, to let us talk to her for a while. And the results are in. Over 70% of the voters uh, as of now have uh, decided to remove them from the school board. Wow. And so, and this is an overwhelmingly democratic city. And I think what they were responding to was just a egregious pattern of uh, lack of focus on the right things, poor governance, uh, and just just lack of any competence. Like here are just a few examples. They kept schools closed longer than anywhere else in America while declining to do anything meaningful to help these sort of parent hubs that were set up around the city where parents were just struggling and working with nonprofit organizations. And even the mayor was trying to help with those, try to get these alternatives while the schools were closed. Uh, the school board did basically nothing. I mean, very little to help that. They, as you pointed out, they were focused on performance rather than the reopening of schools. So there was one school board meeting after another where they were doing things like debating for hours, like renaming schools that were closed at that mm. point, which they wound up passing a resolution to rename schools. And they renamed schools that were named after George Washington, Lincoln, Paul Revere, and Dianne Feinstein. What? Uh, yeah. And, Feinstein? And it turns out that they didn't even consult historians properly and they had to retract some of these things. The Paul like, Revere one specifically, yeah, right? Yeah, Paul Revere. And, uh, and Oh, he was a good guy. Yeah, I think they yeah, tarnished they, Paul Revere. They I think. tied him to some like genocide of Native Americans oh. that was historically not actually oh, what wow. happened. Yeah. Crazy. But like one could argue, I could have a debate with somebody over any of these historical figures and contemporary figures like Dianne Feinstein. Sure. But doing that in the middle of a pandemic when you haven't figured out how to reopen your schools is criminal. And they spent uh, the district into a financial calamity where the state had to step in. They fired their reopening consultant for their schools because the school reopening consultant had the sin of having previously done work for a charter school. And then they uh, denied a spot on a parent board of education volunteer parent committee to a gay white father of a biracial child who is deemed not diverse enough to serve. And they spent hours on that in a meeting debating it <laughs> uh, when they were not, and that was, the, that was on the agenda in that meeting before they got to school reopenings. And basically all these people who were like waiting to find out like, how are we gonna talk about school opens have to sit through this hours long, you know, like purge, I guess. Now you would think that a board that has such high standards for their volunteer committee themselves were acquitting themselves well. But Allison Collins, uh, who is one of the members who was removed, herself made a racist series of racist comments about Asians and then refused to, to step down. She was actually stripped of her committee seats uh, and, and a lot of her powers from the board. But the very chair that I interviewed, she recused herself from that vote, refused to call out Allison Collins for these racist 
uh, statements. And then Allison Collins turned around and sued the school district because of the removing of the committee seats and all this kind of stuff for millions and millions of dollars. That's money that she would have taken out of the school schools and the very kids that she's supposed to serve at a time when they're you know falling apart financially. So this is like a disaster of a school board. And I think it, what's been particularly frustrating to me is that a lot of my progressive friends have totally come to the wrong conclusion about this. The teachers union in San Francisco said in a statement that it was basically saying that this was wealthy venture capitalists and billionaires. And they said they poured almost $2 million into the recall campaign. It's like a Austin Powers moment here. Oh my God, 2 million uh, in San Francisco? Venture <laughs> venture capitalists, really? In San Francisco spending money on a school board? Are there any non-venture capitalists in San Francisco? So um, it's, it's a sham. A lot of progressives uh, called it out in San Francisco. And in this teachers union then said they they call on London Breed, who now has the power of the mayor of San Francisco, to appoint, quote, pro-public education replacements. The assumption being that the people who removed were pro-public education, and this shows the moral bankruptcy of a lot of these people, that the, being pro-public education is that long list of shit that I just described. But God forbid you support charter schools or parent hubs or want some sense of accountability and focus in your school board. That's not pro-public education. Wow. That sounds insane. And it sounds like it was a good thing that they were removed from that board. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And in an era of all this like crazy parental involvement and some things going way too far, this is an example of how actually like a community doing justice on their school board and getting involved in a way that they hadn't been before and actually investigating what's going on and finding that there is a democratic process to overturn that. And it worked out here. And I want to just end with a quote from the former mayor of San Francisco, Art Art Agnos, and this is what he said, we can't let ideology get in the way of competence and this school board has demonstrated unparalleled incompetence. Mm -hmm. And that's my point. It's like, we need to do better in government and to progress is like more focus on the follow through. We saw it here with de Blasio. It's like huge promises. And then you're showing up to work at 11 a.m. every day. And it's like, all right, like if you're gonna promise all these things, you gotta put in the work. Absolutely. Maybe promise fewer things if you're not gonna put in the work. There you go. Well, the voters have had their say. Um, let's move to our last story. Billionaire Peter Thiel has backed a new conservative dating app called The Right Stuff. So, Ravi, this do you, you why me first? Yeah, like, are, <laughs> are you are you going to sign up for The Right Stuff? I first of all, I I don't know why we're starting with me on this, but uh, <laughs> but I already put my my email address. I actually put my lost debate email because I don't want to like in any way pretend like I'm not like like a journalist. I guess is what we can call ourselves at this point. But yeah, like I'm accused by a lot of progressives of being too conservative. So I feel like I should be able to go on this. You this organized for multiple Democratic politicians and you're going to go on the right stuff. Look, like I have the courage to change. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Obama. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, this I, but what a Ricky, this idea of like going on a dating site specifically aimed at like a political ideology. Is that not kind of off? I don't love it. Um, I mean, I definitely think that in a city like New York, it's difficult to date as someone who's more right-leaning. That's definitely an experience I've had, but I definitely wouldn't want to be like siloed into some weird uh, dating app. But I would point out it's invite only and only in DC. So I'm oh, gonna right? I'm gonna saying, venture huh? a guess that between yeah. the three of us, I'm the only one who's gonna get invited. But yeah. I also was thinking about the percentages and the ratios, and I have a feeling that it would be pretty off. Like oh, yeah. males tend to be more conservative yes. just in general. So mm. I'm curious to see if that's what the invite only thing is doing. Like they're trying to like adjust the ratios, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and there would be a liberal version of this in New York, except it's just every, every dating yeah. app. Yeah, and you go in <laughs> and people, 
more often than not have something to the equivalent of Trump voters need not apply or mm-hmm. Trump voters swipe yeah, left or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I think this gets to a larger phenomenon which we've been talking about, which is people from across political ideologies aren't interacting uh, in life yeah. in the way they used to. Like my mom is a, a hardcore Democrat. My dad is a hardcore Republican. And they were basically that when they met. And, yeah. you know, they didn't stay together, but it wasn't because of their politics. Yeah. You know, you have Carville and Matlin and things yeah. like that, but things that you would be inconceivable today. today. Uh, so much harder to do today because, you know, people's respective friend groups won't accept it. Like if I if I brought like a, a Trump supporter to my like Brooklyn dinner party, that oh. would that would lead to fewer invites, I would say. Yeah. It's not that I wouldn't do it for that reason. It just would it would inflict a cost. I mean if you showed up with the MAGA hat on yeah, yeah. specifically that, that would be would, an issue. That yeah, would probably yeah. be an issue. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm thinking is so if we're gonna make, you know, a conservative dating app, I know you, you all said that in New York like all the dating apps are pretty much liberal, but for nationwide, let's just make a let's make a liberal dating app. And what I've done is I've come up with along with my comedy writer, uh, we've come up with some names for a possible liberal dating app because <laughs> the conservative one calls itself the right stuff. I mean, they stole that from astronauts in the 1960s. They yeah. had the right stuff. Uh, but we had to think of like, well, what will the liberal version of this be called? So we came up with a, a few names, you know, something basic. It could be called like liberal love. That's a, that's a good start. That's good. Um, okay, comrade. <laughs> um, yeah, like the okay Cupid. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, anarchist. You know, <laughs> you know, going that, we can go in that, um, just swipe left. Everything, everything swipe left. Swipe, all of it has to so go swipe right left. So right is, you're passing You're on passing right. on I feel like right. that will okay. lead to some mistakes, but sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah it'll be confusing at yeah. first, but they'll, yeah. they'll, get, they'll, get the, they'll get the hang of it. Call you a cab. Like, call you a cab? I'm going to call you a cab after this? Okay. Uh, that one in That's a well. deep cut. Uh, that's a deep one. Um, cancel student loneliness. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and finally... Date stage capitalism. <laughs> the premium version will cost twenty four ninety nine though. So yeah, get it like your premium healthcare. It's a it's a it's a complicated one. But yeah, um, but yeah, and also and just a bonus when workers control the means of reproduction. Okay, never mind. We won't do that one. <laughs> and also for a centrist dating app, moderately attractive. Which way do you swipe? That's what we call the Boston dating app. Oh, okay. Well. Well, sorry about that, Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking one city out at a time. One city at a time. Yeah. Well, we love Seattle. We really love mm-hmm. Seattle. They're great people in Seattle. Yeah. So I'm going to vote for OK Comrade. I think that's the best. OK Comrade, yeah. yes. You know, the, ironically, that's the one my comedy writer didn't write. I came up with that one. So, there you go. There we go. No, sorry, sorry, Joe. But uh, you did good, though. That was, that was good work. Great episode. I really enjoyed having these conversations. We thank you all for watching. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to our podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.